Yeah, so what a joy. I, I got to spend the weekend with the Summit and, and the lead pastors, and, and it's just such an encouragement, 40 years of the Grace family. Um, as Ben said, I lead the church in Capital City. I, I, I guess I'll show you. I think I have a picture of my family. This is my family. Um, this is my wife, Jessica. She's a climate scientist. She's a, a Georgia Tech, did a doctorate. Have we got any rambling wrecks in the house? Any other? At least a few of us. Better days ahead. Better days, as C.S. Lewis said. Um, my eight-year-old son in the, the, the blue and yellow shirt, that, that was Liam. When we had Liam, we actually, he was born in Atlanta while we still lived here. And um, growing up, he's such a, he's, he's quite, kind of quiet, kind, gentle. And we said, we said, God has given us the child that we could handle. Thank you, Lord. And then Josiah came. He was our two-year-old. And he was the child we could not handle, as it turned out. And he's a wild man, and he is all feeling all the time. He is very happy, or he is very angry, and he is not afraid to let you know. In that moment, he is very happy, though. And uh, so grateful for my family. And my wife works in kind of a cross-section of policy and faith, doing creation care, environmental stewardship work um, on the Hill, and working with different faith groups, but also with different kind of policymakers, and so between the church and her work and raising some kids, and uh, we keep our lives pretty full, as, as many of you do. So thank you for allowing me to be here. I'm, I'm especially honored to get to speak in this Values series. I think it's always such an important time when a church is reminding themselves of who God has called them to be, the unique mantle that God has called them to carry. And so it's a, just a joy to speak into that. And I'm going to be speaking into the value of, of passing the cloak and really asking the question, what, is it, what does it mean to have a generational vision? What does it look like to be a people who see our role on the earth, not just as here and now, but recognizing there is going to be a day where this room in, in God's grace and his sovereignty will be full of completely different people, right? And that today, while we are not the whole story, we are part of the story. And we play an integral and important role in that. And we are indeed called to pass the cloak. And so I want to teach out of 1 Kings. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. I believe the text will be on the screen as well. A a, a big part of the theme of 1 Kings, if you've studied it, is really Israel asking this question of what would it mean for us to have a king? How do we live out an earthly kingship? And if you know Israel's story, you know the plan actually was not for them to have an earthly king. You go right back to the book of 1 Samuel. This is where Israel begins to ask God for a king. And of course, the plan was always, no, you don't need an earthly king. God is your king. Yahweh is your king. And yet, just like many of us do, Israel are looking around at all the other nations and they're saying, well, these guys have a king. And they've got, you know, this warrior who rides a horse and can lead us in the battle. Like, that's what we want. And so finally, God relents and says, well, if you have an earthly king, then you are going to be subject to an earthly reign. Okay, these two things come together. And so first of all, they get this king named Saul. Remember Saul? And he's, he's okay, <laughs> You know, it, you know, I think in, in the physical, he looks like a king. He's this big, strong guy, and, 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 you know, like, oh, yeah, he ticked all the boxes. But apparently, he was very insecure. 
There's a lot of jealousy, and so there were things going inside, and so they have Saul, and then of course we have David comes after Saul, and a lot of Saul's insecurities were stirred up by the fact that David was really the king Israel wanted. And David, in a lot of ways, was Israel's most famous king, David the the man after God's own heart, the giant slayer, the worshiper. I mean, the perfect Renaissance man, wasn't he? He was, he was a, a poet and a warrior, all of it, right? Also an adulterer, <laughs> murderer, you know, so he had that going on as well. But we, we pick up the story at the end of David's life, as David's reign is coming to a close. And this is 1 Kings Chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. And it says, When King David was old and well advanced in years, he could not keep, keep warm even when they put covers over him. So his servants said to him, Let us look for a young virgin to attend the king and take care of him. And she can lie beside him so that our Lord the king may keep warm. This is actually in the Bible, okay? So just keep that in mind. Then they searched throughout Israel from a, for a beautiful girl, and they found Abishag, a Shunammite, and brought her to the king. And the girl was very beautiful. She took care of the king and waited on him, but the king had no intimate relations with her. Now Adonijah, whose mother was Haggath, put himself forward and said, I will be king. And so he got chariots and horses ready with 50 men to run ahead of him. His father had never interfered with him by asking, why do you behave as you do? He was also very handsome and was born next after Absalom. This is the word of the Lord. Um, I, think I, um, I think I scandalized your staff team a little bit when I said this would be the text that I was preaching from. <laughs> I, I sent it. When someone from your team reached out and said, what, you know, what slides do you want? I said, oh, this one. And they waited and they wrote back and they are you sure? <laughs> Just want to make sure you didn't mean 2 Kings chapter 1. You know, easy typo to make, I guess. But no, indeed, this is, this is the one. Um, so David is cold, apparently. And rather than just get him another blanket or put a log on the fire, they're like, no, no, we need to find a young woman to lie with him. Um, and it, it's interesting you read this. What's really going on here is a test of David's virility, okay? David is old, and part of what they're doing, this isn't just a test of David's integrity. I mean, it says that he didn't have sex with her, but this wasn't just a test of his integrity. It was a test of his virility. This is part of how they would test aging kings, is have a young woman lie with him and see if he slept with her. If he did not, then the kingdom would say, well, he's probably... He might be done. <laughs> it might be time for us to look for a new king. Um, and that's what's actually going on here. This isn't just about whether or not David is cold in the wintertime, all right? This is a test of his kingdom. Is it time to start looking for a new king? And so what happens here is this moment kicks off the battle for succession, right? This, this is David coming to the end of his reign kicking off a battle of succession. Now, I'm, I'm the pastor of a church. 
I am preaching with you guys this morning as, as a pastor. And so as a pastor, I would never recommend that you watch a show on HBO. I would just wouldn't do that. And I would never suggest that there is one of the greatest shows ever made on HBO called Succession and that anyone should consider watching. I wouldn't do that. I would never say it's really one of the best well-told stories. And I would never tell you that it's called Succession and that you should consider watching. I wouldn't do that. Ben might because he's on the way out. But... I would not, but hypothetically, if I were to do that, I would tell you there's an amazing show called Succession. Has anyone watched Succession? Okay, a handful of you are willing to admit it. In a, um, it is the story, it's the fictional story of the Roy family, and the Roy family mirror the real-life Murdoch family. Everyone know Rupert Murdoch and the Fox Corporation, Fox News, actually came from my hometown. Adelaide, South Australia. Rupert Murdoch was born in Adelaide, South Australia. And um, the Roy family, you know, you have Logan Roy, who is kind of Rupert Murdoch. He's this media mogul, billionaire, controls all the news, and he is aging. He's coming to the end of his time. And his four children, uh, Connor, Connor, Kendall, Shiv, and Roman, and they are vying to take over the empire, right? And the story is just so well told, the, the fighting, the posturing, the backstabbing, all of this, and who is going to take over this empire. And I, I, I often think about that show when I read the stories in First Kings, because guys, this is real life Bible HBO right here, right? <laughs> this is way better than any show you could watch on TV because David has the empire, right? He has, he's had this test of virility, which I don't know if you say he passed or failed, but whatever way, it's time for someone else to take over the empire, and his sons are lining up to say, who is it going to be? Who is going to lead the kingdom of, of Israel? And so we start learning about this, and, and in this particular passage, we, we learn about this son, Adonijah, okay? We learn a couple of things about Adonijah. He's the fourth son. He's the son of the mother Haggis. Um, we learn that he's a pretty good-looking guy, apparently. He's handsome. He's also confident. We pick that up, right? This good-looking, handsome guy, he's like putting himself forward, saying, I am going to be the guy to rule Israel. No one's asked him to do that. He has just put himself forward, saying, this is going to be me. We also learn something really interesting about Adonijah's childhood, and it's in, in verse 6, and, and maybe we can put up verse 6 there just for a minute, because this is, I think, one of the most critical insights in this particular story. It says there that David never interfered with his son. Never rebuked him, never disciplined him. wasn't active in fathering Adonijah in any way at all. And it, it kind of gets me, my mind thinking like this, there's a lot of things we know about David, right? I mean, comparatively to other biblical characters, we know quite a lot about David the giant slayer, David the warrior, David the lover of God's presence, like all these things, these stories about David. But what kind of dad was he? Like, seriously. 
what kind of dad was he? Because for whatever reason, the writer of 1 Kings has wanted to make sure we understand that there were moments, just like every child, that it would have been really helpful for a parent to step in and say, maybe in different words, why do you behave as you do? I said that to my kids a couple of times. You know, here's, here's, here's what it really looks like to, to, to walk and to, to be a person of integrity. And yet, Adonijah never had that. And, and the writer of the story wants to make sure we know that David was a distant father. And while we know so many heroics about David's life, what we begin to see come out of the legacy of David's life, the lineage of David's life is anything but heroic. In fact, there is some disaster that is coming, coming out of Israel's most famous king, who was apparently a very distant dad. Things begin to unravel very quickly. A few stories you may or may not be familiar with, but some, if you go back to 2 Samuel, we, we, we read about another son, right? The first son of David was a, a a guy named Amnon, one of the darkest stories, in, in my opinion, in the whole Bible is the story of Amnon. Amnon was obsessed with his half-sister Tamar. You know this story? It is an absolute dark and wicked story. He, he becomes so obsessed with his half-sister Tamar that he rapes her. And then it says that after he has raped her, he hates her more than he loved her. It leaves her completely desolate. Like she is a, once that has happened in, in those days to a woman, there's no restoration, there's no healing. She is desolate, cast out, right? This is coming from his lineage. Now, now David, apparently you read the story, David is angry about it, right? He hears what his son Amnon has done to Tamar. He's angry about it. And he does nothing. He's passive. So then another son, Absalom, who we hear a little bit about in verse 6, he hears about what's happened, and he says, well, if David's not going to do anything, then you better believe I am. And so he arranges for his other son, Amnon, to be murdered. So now, coming out of David's lineage, we've got rape, we've got Tamar who's desolate, we've got murder, right? I mean, this whole thing is starting to blow up, right? David, again, he hears about it, right? He, the, the, the desolation of his children, all these terrible things that are happening, right? And it says that he's heartbroken. And you know what else he is? He's not just heartbroken, he's passive. Doesn't do anything. Doesn't step in. So much so that in the vacuum of any real intentionality shown by David, the vacuum opens up space for a civil war to brew. Absalom, like he's so angry about what has happened, he leads a full-blown revolt against his father. Thousands and thousands of people are killed in the civil war that pursues from what has come. And the whole time, David, he's heartbroken, he's angry. Of course, he would never have wanted this to happen, but he is, he's passive. He steps back, just like we, we're kind of introduced to in verse 6, right? He never interferes. He just sees this happen. 
I mean, you could, you could follow this out. I mean, King Solomon, maybe David's most famous child. I mean, so much about Solomon starts off so, so well. Incredible wisdom. He is the man who builds Solomon's temple in the end. But I think we all know a, a good start doesn't necessarily mean a good finish, does it? And not only does Solomon build the temple, but he also leads the nation in idolatry. He concludes, if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, one of my favorite books in the whole Bible. Meaningless, meaningless. It's all meaningless, right? Guys, this is, this is so interesting, not just to look at David, the man, the hero, the... The, 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 the warrior, but to actually say what did, what came from David. Now, now here's what I know to be true. Not all the actions of a child can be attributed to a parent. I pray that grace over my own life. <laughs> and I have seen, and you have seen, I have seen incredible parents, godly parents, intentional parents, and I've seen their children just go off the rails and make decisions that they never would have dreamed of. And I've seen vice versa. I've seen very distant parents who were not intentional with their children at all, and their kids have somehow kind of just worked through it and lived godly lives, right? I mean, we know there's not a a direct correlation all the time, but it's so interesting to me that when I read this story, the writer would want to point out that David never said, why do you behave as you do? That the writer wanted us to see that somehow David's lack of intentionality, David's lack of of pouring into the next generation that was to come, was attributing to the disaster in some way that would flow out of his life. And as this succession begins to take place, we see that there were real ramifications from David's distance. That there were real breakdown, real disaster that would come. And so, sitting on this story and, and, and thinking about the value of passing the cloak, of what it means to raise up the next generation, there's been a, a revelation in my own heart that I've been sitting on. And I've felt the Holy Spirit kind of shaping it as, as I lead a local church just, just like this. And it's a revelation that when I first say it, I think it's maybe will feel like it's just for parents, but it's not just for parents. It's, It's for anyone who follows Jesus. And it's centered around a question. And the question I want to ask you this morning is why the church? Like, really? Like, why are you here? Because... I think it's, it's worthwhile stepping back and evaluating that sometimes. Like, why are we doing that? Like, what, why are so many of you making sacrifices and serving and, and giving and pouring in? I mean, it's cold outside today, guys. It's really cold. I thought it was just cold in D.C. Like, there's a little snap of Georgia cold. You had to get up. You had to put on some clothes. You all look amazing. You you had to get in the car and you had to make it to church, right? And you did it. You're here. And there are many of you who aren't here but normally are. There are so many people, right? Why the church? And the reality is if the church is just about sermons, let me give you a hint, guys. There are a lot of podcasts out there right now. 
great preachers. If it's just about worship music, you know what? Spotify, some great worship music. You can sing. You can listen to worship music. You can, you can take in great Bible teaching. I, I have so many friends, and I think this was, was accelerated in the pandemic. I have so many friends who love Jesus and have no interest in engaging in the church. It's like, I'm just going to raise my kids I'm going to raise my family. I, I can disciple my kids. I, can just, I don't need the church, right? I mean, I think that's happening more and more. And so it's worth sometimes sitting back and like, why do we bother? I can just raise my family. I can just teach them about Jesus. I don't need the church. Now, it's interesting. There was a, a study that was released. This was back in, I think it was 2021. So it's kind of just coming out of the pandemic. The Pew Research Center, and, and you can Google it later, but... Um, they did a study centered around 1,800 families. 1,800 families with teenage children, different levels of religious engagement, right? And they were trying to really ask this question, how does the religious active engagement of a family in a local church impact the next generation? Like all these different kind of levels. And, and, And here's what they found. It's very, very interesting. What they found, and some of this won't be a shock to you at all, is that your immersion in a local church does not guarantee that your child will follow that example. I think most of you are like, well, yeah. Doesn't guarantee it at all. But here's the other thing they found. Your lack of engagement in a local church pretty much guarantees that they won't follow Does that make sense? So there is a correlation. It's not the correlation we want. We want to believe that, okay, if I'm faithful in the church, that's going to guarantee my children are going to one day make a decision to follow Jesus. We know that's not true. But the flip side of it is also important. There is correlation that our lack of engagement in a local church pretty much guarantees, I mean, the statistic is pretty overwhelming that the next generation will not see any value in following Jesus at all. And so, so here's, if I can come back to the question, why the church, right? I mean, I can just disciple my kids. Trust me, I believe you should disciple your kids. I believe discipleship begins in the home, right? But here's why the church is so, so important. It's so important because at the end of the day, your faith is on its own is not enough. Your faith, as a faithful mother, as a faithful father, as a faithful parent, right? And I'm going to broaden this out to the whole church. Whether you have kids or not, you're going to see yourself in this, right? It will not be enough, right? Pew Research confirms this, right? I am convinced that one of the central roles of the local church is to immerse the next generation, not just in kingdom families, but in kingdom villages. 
in communities of people where the values we believe are true, that Jesus is Lord, that the, 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 the work of the resurrection, resurrection is pivotal, that Jesus is coming again, that he has a purpose in your life, right? Those values are not just being taught by mom and dad and a Bible study, but a whole village of people is saying, this is what we believe is true. This is what we live into. This is the work of the local church so that when the next generation, right, and we're talking about passing the cloak, the next generation get to that moment of testing, and they will, and they are, it will not, again, we have no guarantee. Kids make their own choices. We have, they have not just the faith of mom and dad, which, let's be honest, their voice matters less and less and less as they get older but they have literally swum in the waters of a kingdom-valued community that says this is who Jesus is. Friends, hear me on this, and I am not denigrating your discipleship of your children, but your faith alone will not be enough. You should disciple your kids. But at the end of the day, if we're truly intentional about passing the cloak, you have to Allow your children to have a chance to drink of the waters of a kingdom village. I um, was thinking a lot about my own upbringing. And uh, if you haven't figured out yet, I was raised in Australia. But you know what? I I actually... um, I, I am Australian, but um, both my parents were born in the Netherlands, so I'm, I'm like Dutch Australian, which is why I have the great tan that I have. Um, <laughs> European tan, moon tan. Um, so I was raised in this kind of like pseudo-Dutch Australian community, the Dutch Reformed Church. We, we were called the Frozen Chosen. Uh, <laughs> we were frozen, and we were indeed chosen. Um, but my grandfather on my dad's side was a Dutch Reformed minister, preacher. My grandfather on my mother's side was an elder in the church. Uh, I mean, I was, it's like this Dutch community of immigrants in the middle of Australia. Like my whole life was Dutch people, but kind of Australian. Um, and so that was the church I was raised in. And we were very involved, especially as a young age. We would go to church twice on a Sunday. Right? You'd go morning and you'd go evening, different sermons. And I remember the morning service was, was boring. And, um, and then the evening, like these days, if a church has an evening service, it's like the youth service. That's not what we had. We, we had, like morning was boring, but evening they cranked up the boring. They're like, we're going to, we didn't think that was boring enough. And so I hated going to church. I just hated it. Like we would, at the end of every service, they would sing the threefold amen. Do you guys know what that is? Amen, amen, amen. And that was the sign <laughs> that we were free. And uh, we had a lot of kids and we'd be in service and we would, be, we would literally be edging out of the pew into these aisles. Amen. I mean, just like stampede of kids to get out the room as fast as we could, right? I mean, we, we were very, very involved in that church. And I've thought back a lot to my time growing up in the Dutch Reformed Church especially. And 
This is, this is humbling for me as a preacher. You know what I don't remember? Sermons. <laughs> I just don't remember them. I'm sure they were great. Uh, I don't remember sermons. I mean, the biblical stories were formed in me at some level, I, but I don't remember specific lessons. I even, we did catechism. That was part of the Dutch Reformed tradition. I, I don't remember what I learned at catechism. <sighs> I don't remember those things. I just have no recollection. I certainly wasn't taking notes as a nine-year-old. You know what I do remember, though? People. I remember the people. I remember, you know, we'd sing the threefold amen. Kids would be out the door in like two and a half seconds. But after us would always come this one old Dutch guy with described 80% of our church. But this guy, he, he was a smoker, and so he had made it through church without a cigarette, and he needed a cigarette. And so we would be playing outside, and he would go to his same spot, and he'd chat to us, but he was always smoking his cigarette. You know, I remember, I remember that guy. I, I can literally visualize him right now. I remember the very, very enthusiastic Sunday school teacher that we had. And she was trying to get us to sing and trying to get us to engage and just using all her joy and energy. And I had no appreciation for it, but I, can, I remember her. I can visualize her efforts. I, I remember the youth group kids. And I, I was not at that stage you know, old enough, but we thought they were so cool. They were, this is in the 80s. And, uh, you know, some mullets and, like, skinny jeans. They would have Ugg boots. The guys would wear Ugg boots up to their knees. Then remember those? And the youth group kids, there was probably, you know, I don't know, 10 or 20 of them. They would sit in the back rows at church, and me and my brothers and our friends, we were the little kids, and we, would, we thought they were just the coolest. Like, wow, one day I'm going to be a youth group kid. Like, that is amazing. Like, I remember these people. I remember that family. I remember the Dutch immigrants coming in like with culture shock as they left the Netherlands and came to Australia and were looking to belong and were looking to raise their children together. Like I remember it. And, and for all the boring sermons and boring liturgies and catechism that I did not want to go to and I made sure my parents knew it, I was raised in a community of faith. And I didn't realize that. I, I certainly didn't have language for it, but I had spiritual aunts and I had spiritual uncles. And I had spiritual brothers and sisters. And I did no clue, but I look back now as a 44-year-old and I'm like, wow, praise God for the spiritual aunts and spiritual uncles. Because at the end of the day, as, and when I got out of high school and into university and everything was post-Christian and everything was deconstructing and all my professors were atheists and, and I was asking the questions, like, yeah, mom and, told, mom and dad had told me that Jesus is Lord, but you know what else? The whole community had told me that. And not just in their words, but in their life and in their witness and in their devotion and in their joy. I was immersed in a kingdom village. And you know what? The reality is, if going to church is about 
digesting and taking in great religious content, then we don't need this gathering. Because the best of it is out there, right? No offense, Ben, you're a great preacher, bro. But I mean, <laughs> T.D. Jakes, I mean, man, you know, there's some good preachers out there. There's some great worship music. If that's really what church is, then let's stay home in our pajamas and let's listen to podcasts, guys. But if the church is really about passing the cloak, creating a community, a kingdom outpost of God's heaven coming to earth, and it begins with us, and yeah, we do things that are a little bit weird. We need to just be okay with weird sometimes. We sing songs, we lift our hands, we give money, we, we pray and we cannot see God, you know. I mean, all these things that to the world are weird, but you know what? We're okay with a bit of weird because our whole faith rises and falls on something pretty weird. And that is that God, as a man, got up out of the grave. And not only did his resurrection happen once in history, but it actually broke the curse of death one time and for all people. If we're not weird, then we're nothing, guys. Come on. We're just a social club. If that's what the church really is, then you know what? I'm in. And I want my two boys, I want Josiah, and I want Liam to grow up swimming in, in the beautiful bath water, the messy bath water, the very imperfect bath water of the church. And it does not guarantee that they will make a decision to call Jesus Lord. But you know what? I think it gives them a pretty good shot. It at least gives them something to fall back on and to remember. And this is why this is not just about the parents in the room. Because the next generation needs spiritual big brothers and big sisters. And the next generation needs spiritual aunts and uncles. They need, they need your worship. They need your discipleship. They need your interaction. The next generation that we're passing the cloak to need to see every demographic. If it's all just people like me in their 40s and 50s and above, right, then they're like, well, that must just be an old person's religion. They need to see people in their 20s and in their teens and in their 30s. They need to see the whole range of what God is doing and what they are invited into. Friends, the church is not just about your experience, your preference, your journey. We are the out of heaven a little glimpse a little taste of who God is I read about Adonijah and I'm like yeah okay David didn't discipline him but where was the village where were the people to shape this young man and his other children as well. I, I was talking to, I have a good friend named Freddie Washington. He was our worship leader for a time, and he's a gospel music guy, incredible musician. So he was raised fully in the black church, and, you know, the Dutch church was a, about as white church as you could get. And so he'd always tell me stories. Yeah, our experiences were as different as you could imagine. And he'd always tell me, he's like, you know what? Uh, in the black church, um, every mother had permission to whoop you if you needed it. <laughs> and he, he would always he'd tell me, you know, sometimes when I was messing around in church and I, my mom, you know, across the pews would call me over 
for a whooping, I'd get whooped five times on the way to the whooping by five other mothers that were like, yeah, here we go. I'm going to give you one on your way through. Because it takes a village to raise a child, right? There was a community. There was a people. I'm not advocating we should go whooping each other's children. I'm just saying, don't you want our children to grow up with that kind of richness? Don't you want to pass a cloak down that the next generation, and, and guys, sometimes the next generation are not even the biological children of the people in this room. They're going to be kids who show up and are showing up that their parents will never step foot in it. But, you know, they need spiritual mothers and fathers. They need spiritual big brothers and aunts. They're the youth group kids that their dad has no interest in them. No, just like David never interfered with their life. And they need this family. Friends, your engagement, the reason you showed up here is not because you wanted to hear a sermon. Because God has invited you into something generational, a vision that goes beyond. Ben, why don't you come on up? There's a um, an illustration that we've used at our church in D.C. a few times, and I don't have the visual prop for it, so you'll have to imagine with me for a minute. But imagine, if you would, for a minute, that God's plan and God's purposes are represented by a long piece of string. Everything God wants to do, right, from the beginning of time, creation, right through to the final restoration of all things when Jesus comes again. Imagine it's a long piece of string. And then imagine for a minute, if you would, that this piece of string was weaving its way through pews. And it went up and down, turned around across the aisles. And at some stage... Every one of us has a moment to hold the string. And at the end of the day, right, God's purposes are not completely contingent on how you hold that piece of string, right? The string's way, way longer than just your little spot on the pew. But in your generation, you hold the string for time. And the reality is how you steward the string, how you steward what God is doing in your moment matters. Like if I were to hold the string and then I yank the string, right? That's going to affect people around me. Or I'm holding the string and all of a sudden I just throw it on the ground, I drop it. You know what? That's going to mean that the person next to me in their lifetime, they're going to have to bend down and pick it up, right? God's plan, God's purposes, they're going to come to pass no matter what, right? But how I steward the string in my lifetime matters. And friends, we need to recognize right now you hold the string. We are the ones. We are the church. 
In a hundred years, this room will be filled with a completely different group. A next generation. Generations upon generations who are holding the string in their lifetime. But today, we hold the string. We are the ones invited to participate in the restorative and healing work of God on the earth. And I want to tell you how you steward your time does matter. It does matter. What we invest our time and our resources and our energy and our prayer into, it matters. The question is going to be, for the next generation that will come, are we going to be faithful holders of the string in our moment? Are we able to steward well? And however many years God has for us still to say, say, yeah, the story wasn't about me. It was ultimately about God's work on the earth. He was the one bringing it all. But I stewarded faithfully what God, with the best I could, what God had given me to steward. So we're going to sing song just of generational blessing and I wonder if Angie maybe if you could just sing that chorus for us the Lord bless you the Lord keep you and I, I just feel like there's a moment just to just to sing a, a blessing as we've talked about passing the cloak of what it means for us as a church to be a people who are raising intentionally and creating an environment what if we just sing prophetically a, bless, a song of blessing over those who are to come, spiritual orphans, the daughters and sons, those who are not yet even born, asking that we would be faithful holders of the string, that God would meet them in that space. Could you just lead us in that chorus? I'm going to sing that. Lord bless you. song of blessings. The Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you That in your strength, in your sovereignty, God, we would be faithful holders of the string. That, God, we would enter in with joy and grace and love what you have given us to do. That we would be not so proud or arrogant to think that the story is just about us and our lifetime. That even in our failure, even in our grieving. Lord God, you have given us an important work to do as we pass the cloak 
May this community, may this church be a place that tastes and smells and looks and feels like a little glimpse of heaven. May there be spiritual orphans who come and they hear not just in word but in deed and in love that you are their Messiah, their Savior. May there be babies raised and teenagers and middle schoolers who indeed swim in the waters of Christian community. Maybe they be filled with the Holy Spirit. We pray for them. We pass the cloak in our generation. All God's people said together.